The following program is a presentation of the Wartime Podcast Network in association with PCN. I hope you enjoy the program, and remember, history is best when it's shared. After a great victory over Union forces in June 1863, Robert E. Lee marches his army to Pennsylvania. The advancing Confederates clash with General Meade's Union Army at Gettysburg, beginning the most famous battle of the Civil War. Explore our nation's past and the Gettysburg battlefield with the Gettysburg Collection. Become a member to stream hundreds of Gettysburg videos online, on the app, and on Roku. Learn more at GettysburgCollection.com. gentlemen and welcome to Battlefield Pennsylvania. Today we're on location outside of Chambersburg, Franklin County. One year after the Battle of Gettysburg, the Confederates returned to Pennsylvania again. This time their target was Chambersburg. After ransoming the town seeking treasure and coming up short, the Confederates set the town on fire uh, and quickly abandoned it. I'm your host Brady Kreitzer. Joining me today to discuss the 1864 burning of Chambersburg is Ted Alexander, former, former historian at Antietam National Park, and Pulitzer Prize nominee Jeffrey Wirt. Gentlemen, thank you both for being here. You're welcome. Let's start with a little bit about your background. Well, I've been in, involved in Civil War for uh, over 60 years. <laughs> when, when I uh, was in first grade, my mother took me to uh, Gettysburg, and my grandmother went along. And while she was on this trip, she kept talking about dad. Dad said this, dad said that. And her father was in the Battle of Gettysburg in the 1st Maryland Potomac Home Brigade. And then uh, my father was from Mississippi and he died when I was very young. But we used to spend, I used to spend my summers in Mississippi. And my grandfather Alexander down in Mississippi would talk about dad said this, dad said that. And he was in the, uh, his father was in the Confederate Army. So I kind of grew up with it. And uh, after that first trip to uh, Gettysburg in uh, first grade, I was hooked ever since. Uh, later on, I was blessed to uh, get with the National Park Service, which was my life's goal. And uh, I worked at a number of sites. I worked my first site was uh, where I worked was Harper's Ferry. And then I worked at uh, the National Mall at the Washington Monument and the Lincoln Memorial. Uh, then I was at Fort Washington, the only permanent fortification built to defend the nation's capital. Then I managed to get uh, transferred to Antietam, which was a life's goal. So I really feel blessed. So I went there in 1986 and that's where I stayed until January uh, of this year when I retired. Well, I became a Civil War buff a little bit older than Ted did. I was in 10, year old, 10 years old and the elementary teacher I had knew the Civil War buffs from my hometown and he told us the stories and I was very fascinated by that. 
and uh, went to college and ended up by, I was a history teacher at Pennsylvania Area High School, which is in Center County. And I retired from there after 33 years of teaching. And otherwise though, I decided at some point I'd like to try writing. And I've been fortunate in that regard. Uh, I've been the author of several books in the Civil War. Uh, my approach has always been eclectic in the sense that I always cared for the story. Uh, you know, I've written biographies of George Custer and James Longstreet and Jeb Stewart. I've written about the Third Day at Gettysburg, uh, the Union Army of Potomac, uh, and I've also did a comparative work on uh, Stonewall Brigade, a Confederate, and the Union Iron Brigade. So my interest has always been there, but like Ted, uh, and I think most of the fellows we know in the business, you end up being hooked in the Civil War from a very young age. and. Uh, it's been, um, it's just been uh, wonderful uh, to study it, to know the people and to, you know, visit the battlefields. And I feel like Ted, I've been very fortunate being able to combine teaching with uh, doing uh, uh, writing. Ted, can you talk a little bit about this location we're in today? We're at the Fleming Farm, just north of Greencastle. And it played a role in a number of incidents during the Civil War. In June, 1863, during the great invasion of Lee's army, the Gettysburg Campaign. Uh, Albert Gallatin Jenkins, Brigadier General, uh, leading elements of Lee's cavalry, had a headquarters here in mid-June of 1863. On 22 June 1863, there was a skirmish here, and that uh, was a skirmish between elements of the 1st New York Cavalry and Confederate cavalry under Jenkins and infantry elements of Robert Rhodes's division, which had arrived in Pennsylvania and camped near here. Uh, in the ensuing uh, exchange of fire, there, were, there was a uh, Union sergeant, Milton Cafferty, wounded here, and uh, he'll survive, but then there's a uh, Union soldier, Corporal William Rowell, from Philadelphia, there were two Pennsylvania companies in the 1st New York Lincoln Cavalry that was here and did battle here. And Rao was killed instantly. He was the first Union soldier killed on Pennsylvania soil during the Civil War. His body was first removed to the Lutheran Church Cemetery in Greencastle. And then in the 1880s, a monument, which is behind you here, was erected uh, to his memory, his body was removed and he rests out here on the spot where he fell. During the, in, in 1864, uh, General, uh, Union General William Woods Averill had a temporary headquarters here. He had uh, a division of about 2,500 men and he had been in Hagerstown on uh, 29 July, 1864. And at this time, Jubal Early had a number of uh, diversionary movements going on in and around Hagerstown to cover for the main uh, raiding group, which was under General John McCausland, and they were heading toward Chambersburg to levy a tribute on Chambersburg. Averill uh, is pushed out of Hagerstown and comes here uh, and camps here. And he and his men are exhausted and uh, he is actually 
sleeping out here on the, uh, in the not far from our cameras uh, on the front yard. And uh, messages from Chambersburg, from General Darius Couch, keep coming to him to tell him to hurry and come to Chambersburg. Well, he doesn't. He's, he's sluggish in his response. And of course, uh, when he does get going, on, on uh, late on the 30th, on uh, probably late morning or early afternoon of the 30th of July, uh, it's too late, Chambersburg is uh, burning. Could we talk a little bit about the war itself in 1864? How has the war changed since the beginning? I'll defer to Jeff on that. Well, <clears throat> 1864, there's a, a couple things that are different. First of all, in the spring, in May, uh, the Union launches a coordinated offensive across, well, basically the breadth of the Confederacy from Virginia down to Louisiana. Uh, there's Mobile uh, Bay in Alabama. They're going to assault. The, the two key ones that everybody thinks about, of course, is the Overland Campaign in Virginia that pits Ulysses S. Grant against Robert E. Lee. And then in Georgia, it's uh, Sherman's campaign towards Atlanta. But of all the military operations in 1864, the one thing and the vital thing that overhung all of them was the presidential election in the North. Because the Confederacy from the time they began the war could never hope to achieve an outright military victory. They're not going to conquer any Northern cities, uh, especially like Philadelphia or New York. Uh, they're not gonna be able to do that. They don't have the resources. What they have hoped to achieve is a political settlement to the war. And by that, you have to make the Northern people finally say, no, it's not worth it. Let our Southern brethren go, if you will. And the key to that, of course, is probably to get out of the White House, the Confederacy's most formidable opponent, and that is President Abraham Lincoln. So as the campaigns unfold, and Robert E. Lee in particular was quite aware of this. He, and uh, if he could uh, punish the Army of Potomac or achieve victories, in, particularly in Virginia, and affect the outcome of the Northern election, that would ultimately uh, end up in the defeat of Lincoln. That was their goal. So military and the politics are uh, linked, uh, they're enmeshed together, entwined together during 64. Also, the other factor is the nature of the combat changes in the sense of trench warfare and particularly in Virginia, the casualties are just terrific. Uh, I've often said if, if you look at that, if you think the Civil War is a bad dream, it was a nightmare for the men who were in it in 64 because the, the casualties are just staggering. Ted, do you want to add anything to that? We might add that uh, by, by 64, Lee is desperate, as uh, Jeff has pointed out, in the trenches around Petersburg and Richmond. And uh, Union forces in the Shenandoah Valley are attempting to uh, pressure the Confederacy from that end. And what happens is uh, Union forces attempt to take Lynchburg, which is a railroad center. They are repelled from that, and the um, uh, force Lee has to detach Jubal early from the trenches around Richmond and Petersburg with the old 2nd Corps, what's left of the 2nd Corps, 
Stonewall Jackson's command. And uh, he, he's the one that saves Lynchburg. From there, uh, with maybe upwards of 20,000 men, the accounts vary, uh, but uh, he early will move north down the Shenandoah Valley and uh, he'll, uh, he'll have with him uh, various cavalry units, including uh, cavalry under a new brigadier, 27-year-old uh, John McCausland. Early will attempt to uh, envelop Harper's Ferry. That fails, but he'll move on uh, after a few days of maneuver around Harper's Ferry, and he'll move to Frederick, Maryland. There he'll, during this period, he'll, his men will levy a tribute on Frederick, Maryland on threat of burning. Meanwhile, on uh, 6 July, while all this is going on, John McCausland is sent to Hagerstown, and he levies a tribute on Hagerstown. It was supposed to be for $200,000, but it ended up just being $20,000. Now, there's a lot of debate of, on what happened in Hagerstown. Uh, the traditional story is that McCausland uh, misses a, a decimal point, even though he'd been a math instructor at uh, VMI. Uh, however, uh, Steve Bockmiller, a historian from Hagerstown, has written a very nice uh, booklet on the ransom, and uh, that's debated whether they missed the decimal point or whatever. But Hagerstown comes up with $20,000, pays their ransom. Uh, Early mo continues moving on, fights battles around Frederick, primarily the Battle of Monocacy on 9 July 1864. Lou Wallace has a kind of, I call it a pickup team of militia and temporary duty men and elements of the Union Sixth Corps, which arrives on the battlefield. And that's enough to delay uh, Early. And when Early, can, he pushes Wallace aside after a day of fighting and moves on to uh, Washington. There he attempts to capture Washington and spars with the Federals who now have reinforced the garrisons there at the Battle of Fort Stevens. And he's unable to break into Washington. So he breaks off the engagement and moves back into um, Virginia. When he gets back into Virginia, he finds out that uh, General Hunter, who he had driven from in front of uh, Lynchburg, is back in the area. Hunter has a propensity toward arson. He uh, had, uh, and he finds out that he'd burned private residences, residence in uh, uh, Jefferson County, uh, Virginia, now West Virginia, and, and in, in, in Berkeley County, uh, the area around Sh uh, Shepherdstown, Charlestown, and Martinsburg. With that, uh, Early decides the, that the only way to stop this behavior is through an example by rep retribution. So he details John Brigadier General John McCausland who had just become, who had just got his brigadier star, by the way, uh, that summer after uh, General Jenkins, who was here, had his headquarters here, was killed at the Battle of Cloyd's Mountain. Uh, McCausland moves into his slot and takes command of his cavalry brigade. 
So he'll have his, his brigade and a second cavalry brigade under a Marylander, General Bradley Johnson. Bradley Johnson, who uh, had just taken over in June after the uh, combat death of General uh, William Grumble Jones, who had also was no stranger to Franklin County, had been up here during the uh, Gettysburg campaign. So uh, he uh, takes over. So you have uh, about 2,800 men and a, ba and a battery of uh, artillery. And uh, they're instructed uh, to uh, move into uh, Pennsylvania, pick Chambersburg for ransom, and levy a tribute of $100,000 in gold or $500,000 in greenbacks. And uh, that's the mission. Like any good special ops, uh, the, uh, his officers don't know what their mission is until they actually arrive at Chambersburg. It's been well studied, the effect that Lee's invasion has on Pennsylvania in 1863. Uh, can we talk a little bit about the year after Gettysburg? What's morale like in this area? In this area? Yeah. Well, there's a lot, tremendous amount of cleanup. We think of these wars and we watch the movies and, and we look at the paintings of the battles and everything's kind of neat. The uniforms are clean and all that. But you have, on the way to Gettysburg, uh, around 70,000 Confederate soldiers move into Pennsylvania, primarily on this road out here that's right behind the camera people. This was the Valley Pike, and this is Lee's main avenue into Pennsylvania in, in June of 1863. When you have thousands of uh, men, thousands of horses, uh, there's a tremendous pollution problem. They don't have Porta Johns back then, and uh, the horses are gonna produce uh, uh, plenty of uh, uh, manure and uh, urine, and we may chuckle at that, but think of the, the ecological challenge to that. And on the retreat from Gettysburg, you have Lee's army pass through this region again, and you have the Confederate wagon train of wounded, which was about 17 miles long, moving out on this highway south to the Potomac, and you have uh, uh, Union troops, uh, Union militia, probably a, a total of uh, 20,000 or more move through this area. So it's a tremendous ecological burden. And after the invasion, towns will pass ordinances where, where individuals have to go out and clean their, their, their section of the street because there's refuge all over the place. And there's, Horses are wearing out, so you have dead animal carcasses all along the way. It is a total mess. Jeff, you mentioned the importance of the presidential election in 1864. Was there a sense in the North that the South could actually be victorious at this point? Oh, uh, certainly. A lot of times when we talk about this, and you look at it as historians, many times we go from the end backwards. So there's Appomattox, so therefore we know how it ends. So therefore everything that leads to that leads to Appomattox. And the fact of the matter is it doesn't do that. Uh, we can address a little bit later after the burning uh, incident and what, how it impacted the campaign. 
but there was definitely a sense in the north, particularly when you put it in perspective, as I said, the, the casualties were horrific. In a span of a month, from uh, basically May 5th through June the 3rd, the Union Army of Potomac in the east lost 60,000 men, either killed, wounded, or captured. That total is greater than Antietam, which is the bloodiest day in American history, Chancellorsville, and then we think of Gettysburg as the bloodiest battle of the war, and in which it was, their casualties exceeded that. I've looked at newspapers where in upstate New York, all it was a four-page newspaper, and all they did was list the casualties from that county in that newspaper. That's all they did. So the sense of the, the Confederacy certainly could win, and the morale in the North overall was getting worse. Sherman was in Georgia, but it seemed as though Georgia swallowed up William Sherman's armies. Uh, how close was he to... Uh, he was closing on Atlanta, but Atlanta still was defined. It still was there. And all these factors were contributing to the fact that, and Abraham Lincoln, who is, we forget, is one of the most astute politicians that ever sat in the White House. He's hearing these reports from across the country, from Republican uh, elected officials or operatives, we want to use the word, and they're telling the president things do not look good. The, the, the level... Uh, of the people and the, the sacrifices that they're making, it doesn't appear to be any end in sight. And that was, that's the main thing for Lincoln. It had to be turned around or he was gonna lose the election. And he understood that. Let's bring it back to Franklin County a bit. What kind of town was Chambersburg in the 19th century? Chambersburg uh, was known as the Queen City of the Cumberland Valley. Uh, and its importance goes back to colonial days. It was located on, again, this road out here, the Valley Road, and the road to Pittsburgh. And uh, in, it, it grew in importance as a commercial center, an agricultural center, into the uh, mid-19th century. One thing that was a boost to the economy was the Cumberland Valley Railroad. And it, it was uh, constructed through here in the 1830s and started at Harrisburg. And eventually, uh, by the time of the Civil War, its terminus will be in Hagerstown. So that's a, uh, a boost to the economy. Uh, its population was around 5,200 people, although some accounts suggest during the war and during McCausland's raid, there may have only been 2,500 to 3,000 uh, in the town. One of the things that would happen during these invasions and these raids would be the, a massive refugee problem. And that was no exception during McCausland's raid. They, uh, citizens would load up their wagons with as many valuables as they could and move north on the Valley Road, Route 11, to Harrisburg, and Harrisburg would be congested. The railroad station, some of them would take the Cumberland Valley Railroad to get out of here, and the railroad station would be crowded with refugees, both Caucasian and African American, because the African Americans do not want to stay here at the time of any Confederate incursion. In 1863, Elements of Lee's army uh, had gone through the area 
and rounded up both escaped slaves and African-American families who had lived here for generations. So they're very fearful of becoming, of being abducted uh, by the Confederates. I imagine many of the viewers of this program have traveled Interstate 81, and then they're in Franklin County or coming out of Harrisburg. They look at the beautiful farmland. All I can say is even back in 63, when Lee's army passed through here, uh, they commented time and again on the fertile grounds, uh, the, the richness of the what to them seemed to be the farms here. The barns were particularly mentioned, the great Pennsylvania bank barns that we're well aware of. They all commented on this, and really this is the extension of the Shenandoah Valley across the Potomac River. So that's another factor with Ted mentioned. This whole area owed its wealth really to the natural resources and the farming at the time. And then you have these other elements that Ted mentioned. But I will tell you that the, even the Confederate soldiers were, were struck by the, the area itself. They, one of them said it looked like a Garden of Eden. They were that impressed with it. Now we've mentioned the destruction of private property, which is obviously going to become very important for today's episode. Was that common throughout the war at this point? Actually, uh, a lot of really bad atrocities was more atypical for this theater of the war. Uh, this is why the burning of Chambersburg stands out. Uh, in other theaters, in the Western Theater, for example, Union armies had been going, going through parts of Mississippi and had actually burned towns down there. And of course, things were way out of hand on the Missouri, Kansas-Missouri border, where there was always uh, atrocities going on from the beginning of the war. And of course, there was the burning of Lawrence, Kansas. Um, but back here, it was not quite as accelerated until 1864. And uh, that's what makes this raid stand out. Because when the Confederates arrive, at Chambersburg, it's no more Mr. Nice Guy, because Lee had had strict, even though there was some looting and a lot of confiscating of uh, farm goods and, and crops and all, in 1863, uh, Lee had issued strong, uh, strict orders about damaging personal property or theft of personal property. In uh, 18, October 1862, Jeb Stuart had raided uh, Chambersburg in the first Chambersburg raid. And again, ever the, the gay cavalier, uh, he, you know, had strict orders for his men not to molest private property. But that goes out the window on this raid. Part of the reason for levying the ransom, hopefully that money will go back and, and uh, be used in Virginia to re reimburse people that have had property damage uh, due to Union activity. But as soon as the Confederates get to uh, Chambersburg, the men break into the liquor supply. They get drunk, and there's ample evidence of this, and they just start looting stores and harassing people, and it devolves into uh, a drunken orgy, if you will. Many Southern sources like to say things like, only Yankees burn homes. That's not something Southerners would do. Was that true or is that more uh, something they just like to talk about? I think they just like to talk about. <laughs> and I'm part Southern. But I'm... Well, the other thing is, in, 
the only real invasion of the North is the Gettysburg campaign. So that we're not seen, as Ted said, Lee issued orders. Now the men foraged all over this valley. They found every chicken coop they could find, their pig pen or whatever, but they weren't destroying homes. Hunter, well, in Mississippi, as Ted mentions, Union armies. The Union armies are the one invading Southern soil. So yes, if there's gonna be those kind of depredations, it's gonna come from Union armies because Southern armies aren't up here. And that's the big difference. David Hunter's operation in the Shenandoah Valley in uh, you know June and Ju early July, that's the thing that is going to part of the retaliation because like for instance, he burns VMI. He burns Go Governor John Letcher's home in Lexington. He burns other private homes. Hunter, by the way, is a native Virginian, but he's of the abolitionist and punishment idea. You're gonna pay for the sins of secession. And he does that. So in part of this raid here, but up until that time, as a whole, Confederates just weren't up here to burn as, as such. I will say there was an atrocity during the Gettysburg campaign. It's the only murder that I know of was just a few miles north of here at Guilford Springs, where some of uh, Jenkins' men who are uh, drunk and are straggling around stomp at the Strite Farm and they demand his life savings, and Mr. Strite refuses, so he's marched out to the barnyard and executed on the spot and buried in a dung heap. And tragically, his daughter, his young daughter, she was just a teenager, will discover her father's body out there. And they do get, get the money from the wife, uh, the money that they're looking for, but then Union soldiers patrolling in the area probably from the 1st New York Lincoln Cavalry, will soon catch up with these guys and execute them on the spot. A year previously, Lee's army had been all through this area, York, near Harrisburg. Was there something about Chambersburg that made it the target for this 1864 raid specifically? The various accounts by the commanders, particularly Jubal Early, state very plainly, Chambersburg was selected because it was the nearest Union, sizable Union town in the area. The Confederates are operating right across the state line just south of here in Maryland. But Hagerstown and many of the towns in Washington County, Maryland are of mixed sympathy. But here there's no doubt Chambersburg is a Union town. It's, the, it's a railroad center because of the Cumberland Valley Railroad. It's a commerce center and it's the headquarters of the Union Department of the Susquehanna, which is largely a paper organization. There's not many troops in it. Darius Couch is the commander and he has his headquarters in Chambersburg. However, that's another symbolic thing. So, but mainly because it's the nearest sizable Union town in the area. We've previously mentioned John McCausland. He's the one chosen to actually raid Chambersburg. Can we talk about the difficulties he faced moving north? There are a number of military actions during McCausland's raid. As a matter of fact, all along the way, he'll meet resistance to and from Chambersburg. Uh, when he uh, crosses the uh, Potomac River, uh, at uh, McCoy's Ferry Ford near Clear Spring, Maryland, he will encounter 
Union cavalry in that area that are down there guarding the uh, CNO Canal and the Potomac River. They'll pretty much uh, push them away and he'll send Harry Gilmore, uh, one of the Mar Maryland cavalrymen. Uh, Gilmore was somewhat of a partisan, but he was on this raid uh, under Bradley Johnson's command. And Gilmore will lead a column of cavalry, including uh, the 1st and 2nd Maryland Cavalry, east on the National Pike, present day Route 40. And uh, they'll head toward, uh, from Clear Spring, and they'll head toward uh, Hagerstown. There, they'll, uh, the Union Cavalry will make a stand just east of Clear Spring the Union Cavalry that is in the area. And uh, Gilmore will lose around 17 men killed and wounded. It's pretty heavy casualties for a, a cavalry action, a small unit cavalry action. Meanwhile, McCausland will take his main column and head north via the Mercersburg Road and via Blair's Valley, which is uh, Along, goes along the, the North Mountain Range west of us here. His destination is Mercersburg. Meanwhile, a detachment of cavalry, about 35 or 40 cavalry, are brought down from Carlisle Barracks. They're under Lieutenant McLean. And what he does is a holding action to, all day to slow down McCausland's uh, column and he has a small amount of men but of course he's creating the illusion that he has more men as he holds up McCausland. McCausland will finally make it to Mercersburg and there'll be a, an action in the square in Mercersburg between McCausland's cavalry and McLean's men. He pushes McLean's men out of Mercersburg and then he stops to rest. So all along the streets of Mercersburg, the, his cavalrymen, they'll either be sleeping along on the sidewalks or looting, already starting to loot, starting to loot stores in Mercersburg. That, after several hours rest, McCausland will mount up his column again and head toward uh, Chambersburg. That evening, he'll do more skirmishing with McLean's cavalrymen, and then he'll push them uh, east back to Chambersburg. Early on the in the early morning darkness of the 30th, actually this, he started this trek on the 29th. So now we're into the 30th and the early morning darkness of 30 July, 1864. The remnant of the Union forces in Chambersburg this is Couch's Department of the Susquehanna. He only had about 140 some men. And he starts mounting up all his material on the train to head back toward Carlisle. However, they'll have one section of the 1st New York Light Artillery. They'll have elements of McLean's cavalry and a, and a detachment uh, of uh, Maryland cavalry out west of town. And uh, in the darkness, McCausland's column uh, marches on and the Federals fire a, 
uh, volley of canister into the Confederate column. That slows up the Confederates. They suffer a couple killed and a couple wounded. And the Union troops make their way back to the railroad and head out of town. Then uh, McCausland has a council, has breakfast with all his officers, and that's where they find out what their mission is, to go there and levy the tribute on the town or burn it. And uh, they, they, only about 800 some Confederates actually go into Chambersburg. Uh, McCausland has 2,800 men, remember. But most of them he's going to keep on the ridge line west of Chambersburg. They'll fire, get the cannon and fire a few volleys into town just to warn the town that they're there. And when they arrive in Chambersburg, the first thing they ask is, where's the town council? Well, nobody wants to volunteer to say they're on the town council. They get a prominent attorney, and he goes around the town to... Uh, get other prominent citizens and he gathers them up and in front of the courthouse and there's a painting that was done uh, uh, on this, uh, it's uh, at the Heritage Center in Chambersburg where he addresses, McCausland addresses these prominent citizens, uh, telling them what they're there for. There's a lot of debate on how much time they have before they're gonna start burning the town. Needless to say, it, was, it wasn't long enough to save the town. So uh, what happens is uh, the Confederates start burning the town right at the courthouse. They start by breaking up uh, furniture and all, and they use coal oil. And they'll pour coal, coal oil all over and set the fire, start saying. And at first, these fires are specific, but then the as the, the fire spreads, it becomes general. And then the men, as I've mentioned earlier, break into the liquor supply. And they start uh, harassing the citizens. They start stealing goods from their houses. They uh, start, on an individual basis, they start issuing uh, tributes on a house. They'll say, well, if you give me such and such, we won't burn your house. And uh, by some accounts, there may have been molestation of women. As far as we know, there's one citizen that dies. That's a uh, elderly African-American man, and uh, he is either has a heart attack or has, he's overcome by smoke, because he'll get, come out of his house, the Confederates have the place set on fire, and they'll push him back in. They just are harassing him, just playing with him, and finally he dies. The other casualties, and by the way, it's interesting to note that the first casualty in the Civil War in Chambersburg is in 1861, and that's an African-American man who runs a so-called disorderly house. People can use their imagination on what that is. However, he's uh, killed by a bunch of rowdy Union soldiers who've come to town. This is, that's in 1861. That's a little aside. Now what's interesting is there are a number of Confederates killed during the burning of Chambersburg. One of the more prominent was um, 
a uh, Captain, or Captain Bailey with the 8th Virginia Cavalry. And he gets drunk and separated from his command. And he gets overtaken by a mob of angry citizens who either beat him to death or shoot him or both. And uh, one account says there's two Confederates that get inside a drugstore and set it on fire and find out they've locked themselves in. And the owner of the drugstore comes by and fires into it through the window with a shotgun and, and kills or disables both of them and they're consumed in the flames. There's a Confederate officer that's uh, overtaken by some civilians out at the village of St. Thomas. And he's taken out into a field and executed and uh, buried at St. Thomas. I think later removed south. Then there's a young Confederate cavalryman that stops uh, in uh, Fort Loudon at the blacksmith shop because his horse has thrown a shoe. And he's bragging about all the looting and he shows jewelry that he's captured in Chambersburg. And the uh, blacksmith is a Union Army veteran. So when the opportunity arises, the blacksmith will take his mallet and brain the Confederate soldier, kill him. And he, you can see his grave in the Stenger Hill Cemetery in Fort Loudoun. So those are Confederates that are killed on the raid. Uh, McCausland and, and, and Johnson's brigades make it across the mountains to Fulton County to McConnellsburg. And uh, there they bivouac. That's the last bivouac of the Confederacy in the Civil War. Uh, then they head to Hancock. Um, at Hancock, McCausland decides to uh, levy a tribute on that Maryland town. But it's a town that has a lot of Southern sympathizers. So Bradley Johnson argues with McCausland and there's almost a mutiny. Johnson gets his Maryland troopers to stand guard on all the houses in Hancock to make sure that McCausland's Virginians do not uh, loot that town. Well, before there can be a mutiny, uh, Union cavalry under Averill, who's here and has finally given chase, uh, catches up with them. There's shots exchanged at Hancock. Uh, the raider Harry Gilmore is wounded slightly in the back. Then they head on toward Cumberland. They attempt to capture Cumberland, and they have a fight at the Battle of Folks Mill, which is just east of Cumberland. Uh, but they're driven back. The mayor of Cumberland has gathered up, besides the few soldiers that are there, he's gathered up over a thousand citizens and given them muskets, and McCausland's not, not able to break into Cumberland because he'd hoped to destroy the uh, B&O Railroad shops at Cumberland. He moves on into West Virginia, fights at two or three other sites, and finally on uh, 7 August, Averill's cavalry catches up with him at Moorfield. And that's where Chambersburg is avenged because they catch them napping early in the morning and overrun the Confederates and capture a large portion of them, over 800 prisoners and many casualties killed and wounded. Jeff, we've heard stories uh, 
about people being hit in the head with hammers, people being burned in buildings. These aren't traditional casualties. This sounds like murder in some cases. Uh, is that common? Uh, well, some of the things we'll never know. Uh, for instance, I, one of my books was the Mosby's Rangers. And there you, you always seem to find out things after you write a book from families or whatever. And there, I think there's been depredations done that'll never get into history books. Uh, this is where we have at least, uh, it's been chronicled and you can say that there's murder or whatever. Uh, just for example, there's a story that in 64, when the Union Cavalry was in the Shenandoah Valley, uh, some of Mosby's men came across a Union uh, Cavalry man who was leaving the house who had just raped the woman and the barn was in fire and that's attracted him. So they took him in the barn, they tied his limbs to two horses and had the horses separate him and left the barn come down. Well, there's no written account of that. That's an oral history from, you know, and here's this kind of example. But on the other hand, with Ted, Ted knows this, the first troops into Chambersburg was the 21st Virginia Cavalry under Colonel William Peters. When he got the order, he refused to obey it. And McCausland arrested him uh, for disobedience of order. But Peters uh, took his, uh, the 21st Virginia out of the town. So it wasn't his, there might've been some of his men involved, but as a unit, they weren't. But uh, the murders you see and stuff, it's all part of the hidden part of the war that you know people don't want to talk about or that was never written down. You know, it, I, I'm sure there's more of it and we'll never know. When the Confederates are in Chambersburg, it sounds very disorderly. Do you think McCausland and the other officers were willingly looking the other way when this was going on? There's elements of that, and I think it's because these men are seeking revenge for these atrocities in the Shenandoah Valley, as Jeff has pointed out. They, uh, th there's, again, and not only Colonel Peters, he's one of the more dramatic of the people that refused to take part in the burning, but there are other individual officers that try to save houses and and uh, tradition holds when you're not certain about something, a good tool for a historian is to use the term tradition holds. Mm -hmm. That way you're right on the mark. Anyway, tradition holds that the uh, Confederates spared the Masonic Temple because of fellow Confederate Masons. That may be, may be true. Uh, they, uh, but there were numerous accounts of resistance by in individual Confederate officers. Uh, so they weren't all looting, but there was a lot of it going on. And um, Bradley Johnson detailed some of his Maryland cavalry to uh, gather up all the soldiers that were drunk and scattered around the town. Uh, and get them on the road uh, before anything else happened, you know. And um, it's interesting to note, as uh, one Confederate group was going out of town, they stopped at the county school su superintendent's house. And they asked him if he'd ever taught African-Americans, but they used the N-word, of course. They didn't say that. Well, he answered in the affirmative, and they burned his house down because of that. 
One thing we always come back to during this event and events like this is the word revenge. How did the Northern press and Southern press show the, the Battle of Chambersburg or the burning of Chambersburg? Well, the uh, Southern press was ecstatic. You know, it's, it's finally we got back at them, the Yankees, you know. Uh, the Northern press was a mixed bag, even to the point where New York newspapers came out in editorials blaming the people of Chambersburg for what happened. They hadn't resisted enough were, mm. was, was in some editorials. And uh, it's, it's uh, interesting, but uh, that was the media back then, controversial as it is today. Yeah, some things never change, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's the same way. Well, like interestingly though, the precursor to this, of course, was Jubal's raid into Maryland. What people must understand about this is Lee has a reputation as taking risks, taking gambles, but it was always calculated in his mind. This raid of Early's, and Early was sent to save Lynchburg, and then he was given discretionary orders if he wanted to go down the valley, meaning north, down to Shenandoah, crossing the Potomac and go into Maryland. Lee was trying to change the dynamics in the east because once the Army of Potomac crossed the Rapidan River, Grant had to, he was the one dictating the, the, the campaigns. It wasn't Lee anymore. Lee had for the, basically the two previous years. Now it's Grant. This was Lee's last bold gamble, if you will. Well, when it happens and Early is in the outskirts of Washington, the New York Times, as Early leaves, the New York Times editorializes that the back door of the Shenandoah Valley was left open once again. Remember, this is the Stonewall Jackson in 1862, and now once again the Confederates are using this. And so something has to be done about the Shenandoah Valley. The burning of Chambersburg is the final straw as far as Lincoln's concerned. In fact, literally the next day, Lincoln meets with Grant and says, look, we have to do something. <laughs> my, you know, I, I'm sure he didn't say, look, my campaign can't take this anymore. <laughs> and that's when Grant decides, to the surprise of, I think, Lincoln and the Secretary of War Stanton, they appointed Philip Sheridan and actually made an army to contend with and to finally, if you will, shut the back door of the Shenandoah Valley. So Chambersburg simply was, I mean, this is, as uh, Ted points out, but I remind people, even in 63, I guess we tend to forget this a little bit today, but Pennsylvania was free soil. Pennsylvania was the home of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States, and that meant something to Americans in the 19th century. So here we have once again, we have this town in Pennsylvania literally burned. Hundreds and hundreds of businesses and buildings burned, and it looked like the Lincoln administration simply was not able to do anything about it. And so Lincoln finally said, no, we, we, have, to, we have to settle this with the Shenandoah Valley. As historians, as we talk about this, if there's one takeaway from the burning of Chambersburg in the greater spectrum of the war, in your opinion, what should it be? The legacy of the McCausland raid and the burning of Chambersburg goes far beyond just local history. For many years, it was treated as just a footnote in Civil War history and looked upon as something that was just local history. But that legacy goes far beyond local history. The 
McCausland raid and the burning of Chambersburg was, uh, as Jeff has mentioned, signaled to the Lincoln administration that they have to do better in the lower Shenandoah Valley and southern Cumberland Valley. They'll be more unified command with Philip Sheridan and there's the need for better mobility to fend off any further raids. So you have the more top quality uh, cavalry brought in, Custer's command and, and others. So that's, uh, I think, uh, the important legacy. It, has, it does have an impact in the big picture of the war in the East. Well, just for uh, literally a little more than three weeks later, uh, Lincoln calls a cabinet meeting at the White House, and he had prepared a letter in which he had uh, written that, uh, that the members of the cabinet will uh, swear, if you will, uh, their loyalty to the new administration. In other words, they will work with the new administration, who Lincoln fully thought at that time would not be him. And he had to, each cabinet member signed a letter. They were not allowed to read it. And this is August the 23rd, because Chambersburg, as I said, is a little over three weeks ago. On the same day at Chambersburg, uh, the Union Army at Petersburg blew up the mine that resulted in the Battle of the Crater, which was a Union disaster. Hunt, uh, there we, we actually had uh, atrocity of African-American soldiers uh, shot down after they surrendered. Uh, all these things are in the news. Then everything changes on September the 2nd when Philip Sheridan uh, telegraphs Washington and says Atlanta is ours and fairly won. And then uh, beginning on September the 19th in the Shenandoah Valley, Philip Sheridan will put together uh, a month of victories at Third Winchester, Fishers Hill, Tom Brook, and finally Cedar Creek. And he will do a systematic destruction of barns and mills in the Shenandoah Valley that even to this day in the Shenandoah Valley is known as the burning. So in all this, but Chambersburg stands out as that signal event here that finally Lincoln had to do something about the valley. Granted, basically ignored it. it not, his concentration was in Lee. And so you have the earlier in defeats in May and, and in uh, uh, July again in the valley. And so finally, this is, this is the, the one thing that Lincoln, I mean, Lincoln, as I said, literally left the White House to meet with Grant to say something has to be done. And when they do that burning, a lot of the troops are yelling, remember Chambersburg. Yes. I might add one other thing, if I may. Uh, another legacy of Chambersburg, I believe, perhaps it re would require more research, but I believe it's an example of one of the first national relief efforts in the United States. Uh, church groups uh, bring food for the people and supplies. Fraternal groups like the Oddfellows send out circulars across the, the north to raise funds for the suffering at, at Chambersburg. So I think it's an early example of a a national relief effort in the United States. On that note, I'd like to thank my guests for joining us today. 
As always, if you have questions about today's episode or recommendations for future episodes, please visit our website at PCNTV.com. For everyone here at Battlefield, Pennsylvania, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.